Blog Talk Radio. Hello to everyone out there and welcome to Hallway Conversations on Epilepsy.com. Today is Tuesday, February 13th, 2018, and I'm excited as we uh, have uh, Hallway Conversations focused on a super important topic, one that maybe is not always the happiest, but I'm happy when we're able to perhaps proper potential solutions uh, to uh, the problems at hand uh, that can occur uh, in the world of epilepsy. I'm speaking, of course, about death and specifically sudden unexpected death in epilepsy. But there are ways that one can try to improve the risk or lower the risk for that. Uh, So today, joining us, uh, we have... Uh, Dr. Oren Davinsky. Dr. Davinsky is director of the New York University Langone uh, Comprehensive Epilepsy Center in New York. And uh, Oren is no stranger to this uh, podcast, and we're just so happy that you can join us today. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. You bet. Well, Oren, I know that we know you and all, but for any uh, new person that may be listening today, uh, can you tell us about your current work in epilepsy and your role in the field? Yeah, I have been an epileptologist for an embarrassing uh, long number of years, <laughs> almost 30, and have, over the course of my career, started out caring exclusively for adults, but within a first year of practice, started seeing children, and within two years, was seeing newborn babies, uh, as there were limited number of epilepsy specialists when I started. So I've been seeing children and adults with epilepsy for a long period of time and have been involved in many aspects from developing some of the quality of life and epilepsy scales to doing studies on surgical treatments and trying to develop new therapies, various genetic disorders associated with epilepsy. I've been involved with the work on cannabidiol, which has recently been published uh, in Dravet syndrome and Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. And one of the other main focuses of my research for the last decade has been on sudden unexpected death in epilepsy or SUDEP. Can you, can you kind of elaborate for us about, you know, what is sudden, I mean, I know it sounds like it should be self-evident, but what is sudden unexpected death in epilepsy? How do we define it? And secondly, how, how common is it? Sudden unexpected death in epilepsy is a death in a person with epilepsy, and it is not attributable to any other known cause. So it's not due to drowning. It's not due to motor vehicle accident. It's not due to heart attack or cancer. Essentially, the typical scenario is someone with epilepsy dies in their sleep, is often found face down or in the prone position, and there's no clear answer as to why they died uh, from the autopsy. Over time, we've, we've done a lot of research. Uh, the Europeans have led the way, and the Americans have recently been very actively engaged. And certainly, it's not limited to sleep. It can occur at any age group. And one of the newer findings uh, from some large studies in Sweden and Canada is that whereas we used to say the, the really big risk group was uh, later adolescence to young adulthood, like 15 to 45, it now looks like children have the same rate of SUDEP, uh, even at age 10 or 5, as the young adults do. So it really seems to be a disorder of all ages. In older adults, it's hard to, it's hard to diagnose because you have someone at 65 who has longstanding epilepsy and who dies either in a typical setting, like their bed, 
or in a less typical setting, like at the kitchen table, and just dies suddenly and it's unwitnessed, we don't know what happened. And if an autopsy is done, it's quite likely on someone age 65 in our society that you will find some atherosclerosis, that you'll find some abnormalities in their heart. And so for a medical examiner, they're looking at a history of epilepsy, and then they're looking at some obvious pathological abnormalities that may not be the cause of death, but those will often be things they'll attribute to as the cause of death. And we believe that it's probably very much underestimated throughout the world. So as far as the numbers, it's probably a minimum of 3,000 Americans a year die from SUDEP, oh. and quite possibly it, it may be more like 4,500. Wow, that's, uh, those numbers are, are still uh, fairly significant there. Uh, can you give us a sense for those listening? What are the what's the risk? Who who are the folks that you know that may die from from this? So we have identified a number of risk factors, and without any doubt, the single biggest risk factor that emerges consistently is individuals who have some incomplete control of their epilepsy, and especially those who suffer grand mal, or what we refer to as tonic-clonic seizures. So someone who has four tonic-clonic seizures a year is going to be at much, much higher risk than someone who has no seizures per year, who's well-controlled on their medication and doesn't miss doses. And other factors like Nocturnal convulsions, big seizures, guamal, tonic-clonic seizures, and sleep would be yet another risk factor. Uh, individuals who have not been good at taking their medications regularly or have had breakthrough seizures due to things like sleep deprivation or excess alcohol use uh, are all going to be at somewhat higher risk. But the tragic part is that, unfortunately, epilepsy is not like most other disorders. If you have high blood pressure, if you have high cholesterol, and you take 80-90% of your blood pressure or cholesterol medications, you'll essentially be fine. But if you have epilepsy and miss a single dose of your medication, it will put you at risk of a major seizure, and that major seizure may at the wrong time in the wrong place be fatal. Wow. Well, well, I, I, I want to make sure I, I kind of always try to proffer solutions when we, when we have something as, as huge as death. So one of the things that there was a recent study that, that was published, and this pertained to the RNS. Um, and can you kind of tell us what does RNS stand for? And secondly, how effective is RNS as a treatment? It's a great question. So the some of the information we do have on the positive side is is that any therapy, whether it's a medication surgical therapy, uh, neuromodulation therapy, like the responsive neurostimulation by Neuropace, any of those therapies, if they reduce seizures, they appear to reduce SUDEP risk. And that's been true across many anti-epilepsy drug studies. It's been true with neuromodulation therapies like RNS, and it's been true with epilepsy surgery. So on a positive side for the patients and families out there, anything you can do to reduce the frequency or severity of seizures will reduce the SUDEP risk. And, you know, we try for no seizures and no side effects. Uh, that may not always be possible, but getting as close as possible is the best way to prevent SUDEP. 
Another thing that seems to be helpful is potentially monitoring during sleep. So if someone is known to have major tonic-clonic seizures in sleep, either a sound monitor or some type of wristwatch. Uh, there are several on the market now to other devices that can detect a seizure from mattress movements or muscle activity. Anything like that then could alert a caregiver or a relative who is sleeping in the bedroom next door uh, to just go into the room and if the person is face down after a major seizure, roll them over, gently stimulate them, uh, and just make sure they're breathing okay and their airway is open. Uh, that can probably be life-saving in many cases. Wow. Well, kind of coming into this, uh, again, in the in the journal Epilepsy in, uh, I think, January of this year, uh, you were first author of a study, and it was uh, specifically on this one, it was about uh, patients who were treated with, um, in this case, responsive neurostimulation, uh, and how they fared with regards to the risk of uh, SUDEP. Uh, can you tell us about that particular study? Yes, since SUDEP has been an area of active research for me, I was in contact uh, with Martha Morell, who's the chief medical officer for Neuropace, and asked if we could review the SUDEP cases with an idea both it's a unique opportunity because the RNS device has recordings of seizures, not just on the scalp, but actually from directly from the brain, either from a electrode that sits on top of the brain or one that goes into the brain. And we wanted to see what did it look like at the time some of these people might have died from SUDEP. It's, again, just a unique uh, data set that we hope might give us clues about what happens with SUDEP. And also to test the idea that RNS was approved by the FDA because it does reduce seizures, both the number and severity, from the clinical trials that were randomized blinded trials. And so we would expect it would hopefully be associated with a lower SUDEP rate than other patients with treatment-resistant epilepsy. And so we looked across uh, essentially over 2,200 years where patients were implanted with the device, so it's about 700 patients, uh, give or take, implanted for an average of three years each. So we have a, a large number of follow-up data. And there were 14 deaths among that category, uh, that group of patients. Uh, two were possible SUDEP, where there may have been another cause. One was a probable, where an autopsy wasn't done, but everything else was typical of SUDEP. And four were definite. The circumstances were typical, and the autopsy showed nothing else. So we looked at the probable or definite SUDEP, which is the traditional ones we use. And we came out, when you look at that, with a rate of two patients per thousand patient years uh, for those who were treated um, with stimulation. And so that gives us an idea of if a patient's getting the RNS treatment, that appears to be roughly their SUDEP rate based on all the patients we know about who have the RNS, and it's a pretty closely monitored population. Now, the big question is, what, how does that compare? Well, it compares quite favorably because in the studies of people who are, are essentially similar to patients who get the RNS, patients, these are often patients who are considered for epilepsy surgery, but it's felt that either they have multiple seizure foci, which couldn't be removed with surgery safely, or they may have a single focus, but it's overlying a language area or a movement area, and taking that area out would devastate the patient. So these tend to be difficult to control epilepsy patients who they're essentially thinking about surgery. And that cohort breaks in the range of four to five per 
thousand patient wow. years, and in some studies, even up to you know seven to nine per thousand patient years. But even assuming it's four to five, this is about a fifty percent SUDEP rate compared to a roughly severity matched epilepsy cohort. So uh, it's a very favorable thing. And I, I do want to just add one more comment. You know, we use these numbers, which are the numbers we inherited from our epidemiology colleagues of two per thousand. Uh, patient years of death, you know, two patients, uh, if they lived a thousand years, would would die from SUDEP. But those numbers are, I think, hard for us as as physician scientists to comprehend fully, and and harder for patients to understand. So a better way to phrase that, I believe, is to say to a patient who, you know, let's say is considering an RNS or considering epilepsy surgery, that their risk of dying from SUDEP is four to five per thousand patient years, or over the course of a decade, they have about a four to five percent chance of dying from SUDEP. And I think that's a really important baseline because many people, when they think about epilepsy surgery, they will ask me and other physicians, well, what, what are the complications? What could happen? And, you know, the first thing I discuss is, well, the worst complication of surgery is, is death. I mean, people get uh, appendectomies, people get cosmetic surgery, and yeah. anesthesia and any procedure has very tiny but, but real risks. And death is always one of them. And for brain surgery, it's about 1 in 2,000 uh, patients. So it's, it's a low risk, and in good centers, it's probably even lower than that. But when you think about a 1 in 2,000 chance of dying from epilepsy surgery or even less for an RNS placement versus the chance of dying from epilepsy if you're in that highly treatment-resistant group, you know, think over the course of a decade. A decade is a 4 to 5% chance of dying from SUDEP. Unfortunately, it's probably at least another few percentage points of dying from a car accident, a fall, a burn, a drowning, other epilepsy-related causes of death um, versus, you know, epilepsy surgery, which definitely has risks and death is one, but the risk is one in 2,000. So, you know, it's a little bit like driving and flying. Some people are afraid of getting in an airplane, so they'll drive from New York to California. That That's an emotionally sound decision. It's not a logically sound decision because the risk of dying is so much greater driving 3,000 miles than flying 3,000 miles. And it's a little bit like that with this. But this study supports others that anything we do, and the RNS is one of those things that can really reduce the seizure frequency and severity, will reduce the rate of SUDEP. Now, this is not a controlled study. I do need to add those caveats. We did not have a control group where we randomized half to get the RNS and half to get standard of care, uh, not tell the doctors and not tell the patients. That kind of study can't really be done in today's medical world and, and ethical world, but but this is about as good as we can get in the kind of data for this for this type of treatment. So at, at the end, the main conclusions is that as long as the treatment lowers uh, the the rate of seizures, particularly these uh, more uh, serious severe seizures, uh, that then that has the ability to lower the SUDEP rate, is that like the, the real main conclusion, regardless of what the therapy is? Correct. I believe that's right. That's that's how I understand this, and I think this fits in nicely with other studies done on anti-epileptic drug trials, on other studies done on epilepsy surgery. If epilepsy surgery is really successful and people become seizure-free, their SUDEP rate goes down 
close to the general population, their chance of sudden death, which is very, 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 very low. If they have epilepsy surgery and it's a failure that they continue to have seizures after the epilepsy surgery, their SUDEP rate, unfortunately, is quite high. So I think the RNS is another powerful weapon in our armamentarium to stop seizures. And in doing that, hopefully both improve quality of life and sometimes medication burden for our patients and also to reduce the SUDEP rate. Uh, Orrin, what what, uh, take-home message do you want to make sure that anyone listening to uh, this podcast, either today or or at any point down the line, that they walk away with uh, in terms of um, what, what what you want to make sure that is conveyed? So a couple of things, Joe. One is that I think SUDEP is something we all need to be aware of and talk about in the epilepsy community. Now, there may be some individuals, for example, a five-year-old with pure absence epilepsy, and as best we know, unless that child gets older and develops tonoclonic seizures, most of them outgrow epilepsy and never develop a tonoclonic seizure, uh, you know, the risk, as best we know, is going to be phenomenally low and, and probably zero for those who simply outgrow childhood epilepsy. Uh, for other disorders like benign Rolandic epilepsy, which is considered you know, one of the most benign and uh, outgrown by 99% of children, you know, many parents and, and many epilepsy doctors or neurologists, pediatric neurologists, recommend no treatment, which is a reasonable decision because medicines have side effects. But even in that disorder, we recently published a series of three cases where children with confirmed benign Rolandic epilepsy at a major epilepsy center died from a SUDEP. Now, that's very rare, uh, and we don't know what the denominator is for that group of three, but it's, you know, these were people who selectively reported themselves to a registry. But then when you get to the more difficult to control groups, the rate goes up, as we discussed. And I think we need to be aware of it, and everyone needs to be on the same team to work together to minimize the risk of seizures, to minimize the risk of bigger seizures, like tonoclonic seizures, and to make sure for those, we can't eliminate them in every patient. Uh, we know that. We try hard, but we can't do it in 2018. So for those who continue to have them, some type of monitoring system, especially at night, uh, is going to probably help to reduce the SUDEP rate. But there are things we can do, taking the meds regularly. If there are side effects with the medications that people don't like, instead of stopping the medicines or adjusting the doses themselves, they should work with their epilepsy doctor to make changes in their regimen so they can tolerate the medications and get a very good balance between seizure control and control of medication side effects. And if it's not working, certainly consider an epilepsy center at that point for a consultation. But there are many things we can do, better sleep, better adherence with medication, avoiding alcohol completely, or certainly avoiding excess alcohol, which would be more than two beverages per 24 hours, in my view. There are many things we can do to lower the SUDEP rate, and I think we need to get together both on a clinical and educational side with patients and families to educate them so they understand this is largely in their control, not completely. And I think from our perspective, just to get better biomarkers to get better ways to detect seizures, to prevent SUDEP, and uh, learn how to make more effective interventions. Such an important point. And, um, uh, any last issues you want to make sure you convey? Because you've given us so many wonderful, important points here, and more importantly, even uh, potential uh, hope and solutions here. I, I think the other point is that the RNS is a really effective device. I have 
been using it since I was involved in the trials, and I have patients who are driving for the first time in their life after failed epilepsy surgeries and tr trials with more than a dozen seizure medications. So it is a device that, although largely palliative, uh, is quite effective and in some cases can really be a significant and uh, remarkable benefit to people's lives. And obviously, if it does, and I believe it does reduce the SUDEP risk and rate for some people, uh, that's another great benefit. But even the reduction in seizures or for some patients, elimination of certain more severe seizures uh, is a huge benefit. And so I think this adds more, more strength to the role of RNS in, in epilepsy care. Uh, Orrin, I just want to thank you so very much for joining me. I think that our listeners are really going to appreciate this. Um, I, to all of our listeners out there, uh, we've been speaking with Dr. Orrin Davinsky. He is uh, director of the Langone New York University Comprehensive Epilepsy Center uh, in New York. Uh, he's been talking about the latest publication, one of many, uh, looking at sudden unexpected death in epilepsy in patients treated with responsive neurostimulation, but also talking about SUDEP as well. Orrin, I hope in the future, as other studies come out, that you will uh, uh, be kind enough and join us uh, to talk about those as well. Be my pleasure. Thanks so much, Joe. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure as well. To all of our listeners, you've been hearing uh, Hallway Conversations on Epilepsy.com. As always, check out any part of Epilepsy.com. And in the future, please join us again for another session of Hallway Conversations. This is Dr. Joe Servan, Editor-in-Chief of Epilepsy.com. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.